So as you know, I have some sheep, and so I'll show you a picture of them first. What do you think they're doing there? Eating? Grass? You can't see it, but there's, uh, there's actually a, a fence line right here, and it has my berries there. Do you think I have to keep them away from the berries? How do you think those little ones learn how to stay away from the berries? Their mom? That's one way. I can take my rod and tap them and get them away from it because my rod can reach quite a ways. I also throw little pieces of uh, dirt clod. My boy makes these little dirt clods for me so it doesn't hurt them like a rock. I'll throw rocks and just it'll ba barely hit their wool there and those sheep will run away. You don't have to hurt them or anything, but just a little bit of a rock thrown beside them makes them run away from it. So when they come in here, they see that orange tree over there. That orange tree is going to be this is an orange tree here, and there's some berries on this side you can't see. In fact, over here to the right, there's raspberries. So they're in this little area here, and they can oftentimes get into trouble. It's taken me weeks to get those little ones to stay away from that orange tree when they come in the gate, and the berries over here, and the raspberries. But their mom keeps reminding them to stay away from it. She, what she does is she walks right by it, and she sticks her nose up in the air, and she doesn't even look at it. She kind of just walks right by it because she knows she doesn't want to have to run away if the shepherd gets after her. Oh, so I'm the shepherd. So I'm out there in my work clothes. I got this big, long shepherd's rod, right? Yeah, I'll tell you another story about the shepherd's rod later. But see this little one here? For probably a few weeks, she wouldn't eat a whole lot of this grass. But now, I'll show you a video. She actually eats quite a bit. So here, here Shauna is, the mother. And so I'm zooming in. Here's the ram. Watch, he'll take huge mouthfuls. They just take all kinds of mouthfuls of, hay, of grass. And this, this little guy here is the ram baby. He's weathered now. He's going to be, not be a, he won't be a ram. That's his mom over here. Watch, he's going to see her. He's going to go over to his mama. And then here comes Shauna, and she walked right past my berries. She doesn't even look there anymore. She just keeps going. And her little one takes her cue. And they all come over here, and right over here are some more berries, but they won't go over there. They just keep eating mouthfuls of this grass there. And that little one there watches her mom and just eats whatever her mom eats. Because there are some things that sheep shouldn't eat. Uh, not, not a whole lot in my yard because I've gotten rid of it. The berries, they walked by the berries back there. And over here, just in front of them here, if we would have kept going, there are some berries on that fence line over there. So they learn from their mom, and they even learn from the ram guy over here, the dad, what to eat. But what else do you think they learned from their mom and their dad, if you will? They learn babies? I don't know. <laughs> they learn what to do as little ones. Yes, they do. They also learn... When I say go, and Zacchaeus, the ram at the top here, turns and he goes out, he doesn't usually run unless I, I yell because they got into my berries. I go, go, get out of here. Uh, but if I normally just say, all right, go, Zacchaeus, he'll turn, this ram, the, the dad will turn, the mothers will follow, and the babies will follow their moms. So they'll, they learn how to behave around the shepherd too. And another thing they learn from their mom, here's... I call her Little Lamb because we sold her, and I, I don't want to name her. She's such a, I'd like to keep her, but she, she, she needs to go to a different home. So she, uh, she started doing something about a, a couple weeks ago. 
I would come up to the fence and I'd stick my hand in and I'd pet her mom because her mom likes being pet. And here comes little lamb. She comes right up and she places her head right in my hand. And she is soft. She is so soft. She, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's softer than any fabric I've felt along her cheek and then her wool. And these little black spots, they kind of pop out like, like 3D, like, like they stand out from the white. And she lets me pet her whole head down her body, down here, and scratch her back because she likes to be scratched back here. And at first, she would only do it through, yeah, all the way back. She itches back there, and they have to rub up against a tree or a fence post. Well, at first, she would only do it through the fence, like her, her mom would uh, kind of be beside her. But this morning, guess what she did? She came right up to me. I let him out of the stall, and she, I, I knelt down, and she came right up to me and just let me pet her all over. The, all over. <laughs> so, so she learned that from her mother because the other little lamb, he won't let me pet him because his mom doesn't let me pet him. Pet her. She lets Mitchell pet uh, this little one, goes up to Mitchell. She's not sure about the little ones because they might grab her or you know, hurt her ears or something because their ears are really, you know, they don't want to be pet too much on the ears sometimes. So she's kind of nervous with the little ones that they'll just grab like that or something. But Mitchell, who goes out there every day, my older boy, he can walk up to her and pet her through the fence right now. She won't come right up to him, but, but she'll, uh, and, they, and we, catch, we catch him and uh, pick him up and hug him and pet him that way. So uh, I just wanted to teach about this little lamb that she watched her mother, what her mother ate. She watched her mother, how she behaved with the shepherd. And now she's watching her mother come up to the shepherd and she's coming up to the shepherd. She learned all of that by just watching you watch the movie. I'll try it one more time, see if I can get it. All right, so there they are, and then we'll, we'll close with this. That's my garden area. It's, it's really tall grass right now, and they've mowed down a lot of that. It's huge mouthfuls, you know. That's the little ram lamb, and that's her, right, the little baby lamb over there that comes to me. And that's kindness. Her, her little baby is this guy right here. He'll run over to her. He's got so much energy, it's, it's just amazing. He jumps all over the place. So she's eating, and he's watching her from the side, and she comes over here where her mom's at. He's over here at the top. Yeah. These two are the mommies, yeah. This is the mommy, and this is the daddy, and the other mommy's over there. And those two are the babies. But just like you watch your mommies and daddies, and you learn, they do the same thing. <laughs> so let me have prayer with you guys that we can do the same thing with, with our Lord Jesus. Lord, thank you so much for these little lambs that remind us that we can learn by watching. We can learn what to do right and wrong. We can also learn how to receive love and to even maybe even extend it to others. And we pray that you can give us that love in our hearts and help us to share it with those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Father in heaven, we're so thankful. We're so thankful for your love. We're so thankful for how you can teach us lessons through even the smallest of animals and plants. And even this morning I was watching some bugs. And Lord, it's amazing how you can help us learn more about you. We pray that you can do the same thing through the word of God here, your first book, and guide us as we open up the pages and discover what the Holy Spirit would say to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
So our theme is about overcoming, and this one installment is about overcoming lost love. I had shared some of this a while back, but I want to share some more of it on, on the overcoming side here this morning. A while back, um, the BBC reported that people decide the kind of relationship they're going to have within minutes of meeting somebody else. Now, they were on a college campus, and they were talking about college students making new friends, and sometimes, you know, eventually uh, they would get married or something. They would develop a love relationship with this person. And it was on the Ohio State University. They paired off 164 students. They were supposed to focus on becoming friends with the other student that was in their pair. And one said, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. We make a prediction about what kind of relationship we could have with a person, and that helps determine how much effort we are willing to put into developing a relationship. If I think we could become friends, I'll communicate more. I'll tell you more about myself and do things that will help ensure a friendship does develop. That initial decision, there is some, sometimes a decision, and we know this is disproved in some long-term relationships that maybe at first, you know, they, I, I've even learned of arranged marriages where eventually they, they did develop that love. They didn't necessarily have that at the beginning. But it's saying in general, it's like human beings, they will make a determination about the other person and decide how much effort they're going to put in that relationship that, depending upon that first uh, friendship that develops. If I have a more negative prediction about a future relationship, then I will restrict communication and make it harder to develop. As a pastor and as uh, individuals in the helping profession would realize, one of the things that happens when a conflict takes place is oftentimes communication starts breaking down. It's one of the first things that we focus on and prepare and rich counseling, especially when couples are beginning to pr prepare for marriage. If communication is not in place, it's very difficult to cover any of the rest of the stuff. And so this is saying, if you have a more negative prediction and you kind of back away from that person, you know, they send you a text message and it's like, oh, and if you feel that negativity, you don't even respond to it, or, or, or you basically you see the person, you look the other way, uh, eventually you begin to restrict communication and make it harder. After the first meeting, which lasted between three, six, and ten minutes, depending on the, the group, the, the, the two people that were together, the students completed a questionnaire which asked them to predict how they envisaged a future relationship developing. Um, they also would state on that questionnaire how much they felt like they had in common, how much they liked the per about the other person, and nine weeks later they were asked to evaluate what kind of relationship do I have with this person. If they rated it positive from the start, more of a positive ending. If they rated it negative from the start, more of a negative ending. I'm sure there were some anomalies in this whole thing as they are in most relationships. Someone could start out negative and eventually say, yeah, I actually do think this person and I could be friends. But I thought it was interesting to find, they talked about this idea of falling in love and how you can determine this or love at first sight. They're trying to kind of prove that. Um, a lot of things society writes about this. The professor said, that tells you things are happening very quickly. People are making snap judgments about what kind of relationship they want with the person they just met. Now, you could find fault with this research. I, I, of course, I pick research apart all the time, um, case studies especially. You know, how was the survey questionnaire written? What was, the, what was the implied thing as they went into that relationship? But the realization does strike me that there could be some spiritual truth to this. After all, when we think about Jesus Christ, what were our first impressions of him? I mean, I remember coming to a prayer meeting, just being happy to be in church. I remember the hugs. I remember 
the, the church kind of fleshed out that belief system that I had developed in my personal Bible study. And I could, I could not even help but try to go around everywhere sharing a testimony or a literature or something about this Jesus that I knew. That was, that was my first impression with Jesus. And I've discovered, though, that you can't just look back and say, well, that's the way it was. You have to keep maintaining that all along the way. There's some truth to this. It, it, it takes some communication. It takes the idea of maintaining a relationship for it to be end, having a positive end result. So in, in essence, that principle, I believe, is correct. That when it comes to Jesus, if we have a positive outlook and we maintain it, but what would happen if we started with a negative outlook of Jesus? I mean, he could change that. He really could. He could show us more and more about himself and, and eventually reverse that, I would hope, if our hearts are willing. But it's difficult sometimes. Uh, you get people whose pictures of God, there's been whole books written about the character of God, hellfire especially, and how the teaching of ever-burning hell, and this is written by, by Sunday preaching pastors, it has, has basically polluted their flocks, that they, that they fear God, that they really, they're just going through a lot of this. Even though the, Jesus is in the picture, it's basically he's a fire extinguisher. So if, a, if that's happening there, what would happen if we had a fear-based first impression of Jesus? Now, it would take some undoing. It would take a reorientating ourselves to what it was. Otherwise, we get to the church of Ephesus, and they have to overcome their lost love. If we never had it in the first place, we need to gain that. If we had it in the first place, we need to go back to that so we can be overcomers. And the Revelation says they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives even to the death. There's that great picture of Jesus that's been painted by himself with his own blood, the blood of the Lamb. And then that develops into a testimony. And so I believe we can overcome lost love. I, and I still remember it was probably eight months later somewhere in that range. Within the first year, I was sitting in another prayer meeting at, at, at the church I began to go to. It was, the, it was a, an Adventist church. And I was just sharing how excited I was about somebody that I'd gone, I'd gone out door to door. And I, I did that a lot uh, back then. I still do it with our glowing team. It's, it's surveys and other things we do. It's fun. But I remember I, I couldn't contain. I just would always go out. I would always go out. Every free moment I had, if I'm on the bus, I'm sharing literature. And I, I remember sharing one of these in, uh, interactions where, where I was just, I said, I'm just, I didn't know what to say to this person. And I just handed them the literature. And I said, Jesus has helped me in my life. Maybe this will help you. And they opened up. And so I was sharing this experience with the prayer meeting, like a testimony. And someone said, oh, yeah, you know, we've all had that first love, you know. Like it's, you know, something that's, it's somewhere on a plaque, somewhere on a wall, or something that's dusty and way in the past. And, and I, at some point, you're going to outgrow that. And I thought to myself then, and I still think now, well, what happens if, if I lose that? What if I get like this, where years later, I don't even, I'm not excited anymore about this. And my emotion isn't just the only thing that leads me, but, but I, I, I'm excited about this. I really want to share Jesus with everybody. And as a new believer, it was kind of troubling to me to hear that, that I might lose this. And then here I am years later. What happens if a whole church loses it? Well, that's exactly what happened in Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, 
These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, he that walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And you can start parsing this and taking it apart. And, and yeah, we know angel can be a messenger or someone who's delivering the message at that local church, or it can be, you know, we, we find some that believe that it's an angel that's, that angels that are stationed there in that church. But nonetheless, you get this picture that John has been told to write and write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. To the, and basically, it's from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And we're told in chapter 1, verse 20, those are the angels of seven churches, that, that each one of them had this angel or messenger. So this is Jesus holding these seven stars, and he's walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. That's the churches. This is Jesus right there involved with this church, and whatever is going to be said to this church, he's, in essence, giving it to them personally. Through John, this message came, but it also came from an angel, from Jesus, from the Father. And so Jesus, as we learned last week, delivers a message personally to this church, and it says, he that holdeth the seven stars in his, in his right hand, he that walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. This emphasis on this pronoun, he, he, his, is basically saying what I just said. Jesus is the one who's personally coming to them. And so then the question is, if he's walking amongst these seven golden candlesticks, these seven churches, he knows exactly what's going on in those churches. He's in their midst. Is he in our midst? You know, every Sabbath, like I keep saying over and over again, this is a time to come together. In fact, I talked to somebody who was really fearful of the events at the end, and I said, you know, the Lord's going to have a way of preserving us coming together even at the end. It may not be in a big group like this, but we have got nothing to fear. And even if we were found ourselves by ourselves somewhere, he would be in our midst. But I want him here personally, in my heart, and corporately. And so if I ask that question and it seems kind of foggy, well, you know, I, I hope he's in my life, I hope he's in our midst, then we keep on reading and it keeps going on. If you want to look back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, I turned to see the voice that spake with me, Having turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the candlesticks, one like unto a son of man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about at the breast with a golden girdle. So if we take this picture of the church at Ephesus, and we go backwards a little bit, we find John wants to see this voice. He turns, and he sees seven golden candlesticks, and he sees the son of man there. It's the same type of thing you find later in Revelation, where you hear something, you turn, you see something. You know, I heard the number, and I turned, and I saw. And, or I, I basically, the lion and the lamb is also a contrast you find with the herd and the sea. But this is an idea of, of getting your attention, and then you turn, and you see the emphasis. So, gets his attention with his voice. He turns, he sees the scene, and there is the Son of Man. The very designation that we find in the book of Daniel, the very designation that Jesus uses in his ministry, the Son of Man has come to do this, you find this is the designation that is found here. And notice he's dressed like a priest. That's, in essence, the church is his ministry. He's ministering to his church. Seven golden candlesticks. And his head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. I was reading with my boys the other night, and we came across that one in the Old Testament, too. Now, the Lord... His eyes like fire. 
and his feet like unto burnished brass, as if it had been refined in a furnace, and his voice as the voice of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth proceeded a sharp two-edged sword. In Revelation 19, it's his word. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. This is all taking place before John even gets to writing down what's for Ephesus. And so you notice the similarity between this description and what John is now saying, this individual who I saw before, he's coming to you with a message. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as one dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, very familiar words of Jesus, aren't they? I am the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have risen. So if there's any doubt as to who's coming personally to his church, it's Jesus. It's answered right here in this this vision. Can you imagine receiving this? Because later on we're going to get to a church that is dead, and some of this statement comes to them personally. It says, even if you were dead, you could be alive again. And so I believe as I looked at this, and there's one artist's rendition of it, this is a description of our heavenly friend, the one who's ministering on our behalf, the one who interacts with every church, every setting, every heart, and he's personally involved in this message that we read about here. So it's a message from heaven, and there he is in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So he's in heaven, he cares about us, but what is he doing? We know he's delivering a message, and by the time of John, especially as you read Hebrews chapter 1, it talks about how God in these last days has spoken to us by his son. So what, what are we talking about here? What phase of his ministry are we talking about here? Something that ushers into eventually the end of time. So we know that as we look at the seven churches, especially as we go on down through the seven churches, it appears to go from holy place to most holy place, from, from this to eventually judgment of Laodicea. Because Laodicea is a spewing out of his mouth. It's a rejection. Not because Jesus doesn't care about that church, but they won't respond to the message of repentance. And so each one, he talks to them and says, if you overcome, if you overcome. And you get down to to Laodicea, and it's a different type of language. And so we have all this sanctuary language. We know by the time John is even writing that inauguration has taken place. Look at the book of Acts. Look at the stoning of Stephen. And look at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit being poured out. All of that was supposed to point out that Jesus has begun a ministry, that he's alive. He's the one who's healing this man. He's the one who's bringing this message to you. It's, it's an, it was an inauguration. But then all of these things that are listed in the sanctuary were supposed to then be pointing to him as well. well we know everything from the, from the washing all the way into, you find the inside here of the sanctuary, the inner first compartment. This is what's being described in Revelation, and then eventually you proceed to the most holy place. And I'm just going to say it. For those who don't believe that we're living in the Day of Atonement, that there's no such thing as that, and all, I've, heard, I've heard all this stuff. You, you haven't read Revelation, if you, if you say that, because Revelation's very clear progression from the, the holy place down to the most holy place, from what we find watered-down judgments to unmingled judgments, these judgments that are not watered down. It, it, just, it progresses, not because God is somehow getting meaner as the book progresses, but because our hearts are hardening as a world. It's, it's sad, but here, we're not even touching on that. Here, we're just touching on the candlesticks. He's saying, basically, 
these churches are to shine for him. And they need something to shine for him. They need something to keep it burning. And it's, of course, the Holy Spirit. We know that's from the Old Testament, from Zechariah. But there's something more specific. Because it says in Revelation 2, verse 4, I have this against you. This is the church at Ephesus who had its first love. Something happens, and he diagnoses it right here. I have this against thee, thou didst leave thy first love. I have something to contend with you about, to talk to you about, to say there is something between us. And we know it gets pretty serious because he threatens to remove their candlestick. Something is hindering that. Something is hindering it. And it says it right here in the text. And this, those three words, four words, leave thy first love. Leave. You laid it aside somehow. We find at the church of Ephesus, and we'll look at some historical data in a moment, they were busy doing all kinds of things. In fact, they were opposing the society around them. But in that busyness, something got left behind. And it's that first love. It's easy to keep going through the motions Sometimes just let weeks fly by and forget why we do what we do. It's, it's a busy world, we know that. But they somehow, in that, left behind their first love. It's almost like I was uh, going for a hike at Lassen this week, took a couple vacation days off, and as I was taking these day, days, we went up to Mount Lassen, and one of those pictures up on the screen was Diamond uh, Peak. It was just beautiful, right in front of Manzanita Lake. And as we're hiking along there, you know, Every once in a while, you find something on the ground. found this interesting uh, marker. It was, it, I thought it was maybe a stylus for somebody's little smart device or whatever, uh, whatever they are. Uh, and I'm, I'm guessing it was a Kindle or something. Maybe they took their Kindle out there and were taking a picture. Uh, and I opened it up, and one end was, was flat like that. I was like, oh, that's strange. I've never seen that before. I opened the other end. It was all me- beat up. And I'm thinking that was probably the stylus part. And I looked at it, and my wife said, well, what is it? I don't know. So I just left it there, just put it down on the ground. And we're not talking about that. We're talking about something valuable. Now, maybe it was valuable to that person who, who dropped it, right? And you've been on a hike or something, you dropped it. Or you're sitting in your chair, and your phone slips out, and it's down under your chair now. Or what. These things, it's talking about an unintentional result. Something happened in this church to the point where they didn't even notice it. And then they discovered later it was missing. And so they were told they also lost their first love. So they left behind the first love. Uh, It's pretty simple in the Greek. Basically, the starting love, the starting agape. And we know agape can be, it's not a pure word in the Greek. It's basically a word that can be, depends on how it's used. If it's used, the Pharisees were lovers of money, agapao. Okay, so it's not a pure word itself. We say agape love is God's love. It's a choosing love. It's something that you choose over something else. So they chose money, even over honoring mother and father. And so Jesus uses that word and says, you agapao, money. Well, here, that first love, that starting line, that, that something that was exciting and all of that, it got left. And I still remember as I was walking around Manzanita Lake, probably three, or in, three feet of snow in spots, you know, and you're kind of trudging through it and going like this and spreading your weight out because I didn't have any snowshoes on. <laughs> it was kind of fun. And here my kids are just going right through it or following my tracks, you know. 
you lose something in that, that thing. There's no real recovery of some of that. Yeah. But here, it's not beyond recovery. Here he's saying, you can see as clear, day, clear as day that you've left something. Go back. And I think we're living in more dire times than when this was originally written because we're living in a time of the most holy place ministry that's going on. Not that Jesus has ceased dispensing grace and mercy and all that. That's still part of it. You still have an evening and morning sacrifice. You still have sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. But what we have is critical time. That it's not going to go on forever. Another dear church member that I know passed away this week. You know, this is happening all over the place. Our churches are losing dear lights. And they're going out. And yet, we're living in times when the ones they leave behind will be the ones that will finish the work. It's sorrowing, but we're living in somber times. Because this was written during a time when the emphasis was mostly on the first compartment ministry. Now we're living in the time of the Day of Atonement. So if we've grown too busy, too much time being spent on, defense, uh, on the defensive, which is what ends up happening to Ephesus, if we spend so much time defending what we believe, I'm not saying we shouldn't, I will defend it even to, to whatever it takes, but I must at some point come aside. Jesus takes his disciples aside to the mountain. He takes them aside to the lake. He, he even tries to get them away from the crowds one time, and the crowds just keep coming. They can't even eat at times. So he tries to get them aside. We have to do the same thing. We have to spend that time looking at him. If we look at other sources besides him during that free time that he does give us, I don't know. I'm not sure how much, you know, life support can go on forever for some patients, it seems like. But as far as spiritually, you, you can't just get by these days. We have to go to the pure source. I still remember uh, when, you're, when you're hiking and you forget a water bottle, you know, you, you're longing for that water. You see that stream flowing by and you're thinking to yourself, I could just go right over there and you know, surely there's been nothing near here since, you know, however long ago. And I could just drink right out of that stream, right? And you think in Girardia, you think in other things. And even as I was going for the hike, I forget, forgot my water bottle because we were going to go for a short hike. And Manzanita Lake is only 1.5 miles around. Well, I got partway around, and the pictures got more beautiful and more beautiful, and I just said, let's keep going, guys. And my kids, of course, were excited because they've got th snowballs, and, and they're picking up snow, and they're digging underneath the snow and taking some pure stuff and eating it. And about halfway around, I'm like, I'm just getting thirsty. So I start digging out the snow, and I'm looking over at the lake thinking, ah, so if I have my filter with me, I could just filter that right out. You know? But what we're talking about is this, that here we are living in a time when the water of life is being extended freely to us to parch souls. And if there's no barrier between it like I had there. There's no barrier. We can drink freely. Why would we drink from other sources? Why would we just focus on the fearful events around us? So if we think we have it hard, think about what's going on in Ephesus. You don't live in Ephesus. you got a smaller town than Ephesus here. Uh, we find Met Ephesus was a metropolitan area. They do figure the thousands and thousands that were in the, not just the immediate city, but the surrounding area. It was a decent-sized city of its age. It was a metropolitan area. It was a city of culture, language, education. We find from maps that it's pretty clear it's a port city. If you look here uh, along the Mediterranean Sea, and here's Patmos, and here's Ephesus right over here. What's going on here? You've got people from Macedonia coming through here. It's a, it's a major thoroughfare. 
And so if we think there's not an exchange of ideas, of culture, of language, of whatever, even behaviors that are not of the Bible, we find that's not the case. That's exactly what's happening there. It's not like it just happens now. It was happening then. Uh, here's the Colosseum picture. You can see, uh, you can almost see the, uh, the uh, sea from over here. It's way back over there. Here's the library, a magnificent library that was built. You look how small those people are down there at the bottom. I and mean, this is, here's an individual right down here. You had a major city of learning going on here. And along with it came religion. We think, well, you know, you know, they, they don't live in the day and age we live. Well, they lived in a day and age. The most stable form of communication was word of mouth or letter. So you would tell stories. You would pass knowledge around. It would get around. It maybe not, maybe not at the click of a button or a text message, but it got around. And, and this type of belief system was there in Ephesus. Uh, there's different kinds of uh, Artemis. We know that there's the fertility Artemis, and there's the celibacy Artemis. You say, well... How do they go together? All right, you had these two extremes, really. If you look at the two goddesses called Artemis, Artemis of Ephesus, and you also have uh, Diana being referred to. But one of them was a fertility goddess, an excess in that regard. And the other one was, I don't need anybody. Basically, a celibate female and celebrated virginity. So you have in Ephesus, an interesting, in, in Ephesus, it was actually. Some believe it was mostly the celibacy goddess. So a lot of strange beliefs came in. Uh, you had others who did the other as well, but they faced a strange culture of that day. Do we face the same thing? An excess in one direction or an excess in the other direction? I don't need a, I don't need a man. Okay, so you have this type of thing going on even there as well. Uh, Nicolaitans was another problem, and you can look them up. But basically, I, I highlighted this one commentator uh, from Thayer's Greek lexicon, looking at this idea of the Nicolaitans, and we'll talk more about it later, but it was liberty teaching. You could sacrifice, you could eat food sacrificed to idols, but also very big on licentiousness or fornication. And you can look that word up in the Greek, it has different variants, different ways of applying that, but uh, whether it's the sight, whether it's the actual act, whether you know, it's an excess in a relationship. It, it's all in there. And so you find this interesting thing happened in that culture of that day. So they had lots of distractions. They had educated people all around them they had to continue with. They had false religions. They had immorality. They were busy opposing all of that, and that's exactly what happened to their first love. It got lost sight of. It got dropped or left. It's not like they were going out and saying, well, I'm going to stand up for the truth of God. And in the process, Jesus, you'll get left behind. They didn't, they, it's not like they were doing that. They were standing up for what they believed against that culture. But in doing so, it's a tragedy. It's, they lost sight of Jesus in it. So it's not that we shouldn't stand up against it, because they did. It's that we have to maintain that relationship with Christ. Otherwise, we could lose sight of it. So the solution, Jesus gives it. He knows this church personally. He's saying to this church, remember Therefore, whence thou art fallen, repent and do the first works, or else come, or else I will come to thee, will remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. Repent happens twice here, but you got this idea first, remember, remember. Rehearse it in your mind. Go back and think about what it was like before all this trouble set in, and you had to counter this and counter that. In the peaceful moments of your, of your, your faith, what refreshed you the most? Remember that. 
And I think it's pretty simple when it uses the word remember. It's simple for me anyway. It's a word that becomes monument later on in the language, which I think the grandest monument is the cross. If I'm somehow getting distracted and I, and I want to say, okay, Jesus, how do you answer this situation here? I go over and I look at his life, his teachings, his, his, especially his last works leading up to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And I remember those things because then most of the time what happens is as I go back through those things, something out of Jesus' experience speaks to my current situation. And I can also go back and remember, like I was doing this week, I went back and I just thought about what it was like in, my, in, that, in those first prayer meetings. What it was like when I began to sh- share my faith for the first time. I still remember calling my grandfather, Collect, and said, did I just witness? I heard Because I heard him use the word years ago that he was going to go witnessing, okay, and Jehovah's Witnesses. So I, I, so I, I, I had this idea that somehow you would uh, do something and share something. But, so I called him on the phone, and we were having a Bible study, a group Bible study there, and I said, uh, I just invited people to the Bible study. Did I just witness to them? And he's like, yeah, you did. I mean, didn't even know I was doing it. I was just like, I heard this term floating around somewhere in Christianity growing up and long forgotten. But I started remembering those things. And you could probably remember the first time that maybe you went up to somebody, did an act of kindness to them, went up to somebody and shared something of encouragement to them. Maybe at first they didn't, they didn't accept it, but after a while they thanked you later. And this is what we're talking about, going back and remembering that though they have been faithful in defending their faith, and we'll find other churches in the seven churches that were even in the same situation, they still need to recognize they were fallen. You could keep on going down that road, but you need to recognize that without Jesus, you're fallen and you have to repent. And when you remember, then you do the first works. So remember, rehearse in your mind. And I do that for at least 20 minutes a day on, on, on uh, the life of Christ. I do other things as well. But I try to rehearse how that has affected my life. And it says, remember that you are fallen or you've dropped away somehow. Somehow you've dropped off of that excitement or it's dropped off of you. And repent. And we know what that means. That's the, that's the prodigal son coming home. That's turning around and saying, you know what? I got to go back to that. So repentance is due for the whole church at Ephesus. It's, saying, it's not saying that somehow they're in some grievous sin. It's saying you've, gotten, you've gone away from Jesus. Now just turn around and go back and recover what you've lost. Not that they shouldn't keep doing some kind of defense of the gospel, but they need to go back to their first works. Don't let that defense overact, overreact and cause your first works. So the solution, in my own words, we must remember. If we lose the first love that God put in our hearts, that eventually we will lose the author of love himself, Jesus Christ. The candlestick can be removed. Therefore, we must take time to behold him. We must take time to remember what he has done, or we will not be able to overcome lost love. I'm trying to keep it simple so I remember it each day. Murray, focus on him. This can happen. You can be busy doing all of these things, but focus on him. And Revelation chapter 2 has the promise, verse 7, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. So here we are listening to this. I'm reading it to you out loud. Back then they would read the whole letter to the church. I'm just reading you a portion of it as far as the whole book of Revelation. 
let us hear. And to him that overcometh, to him I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's, it's this idea of you'll have life. Keep overcoming. Keep looking forward. Regain that first love. Remember. And then it's like it flashes fast forward on the, on the video if you want to do the old VHS. If you want to do the DVD, whatever. You're going right forward. The Roku. Boom. There's the scene right in front of your face. They're eating of the tree. And think about what, it, what that would feel like or be like after you've overcome everything. Wouldn't that be refreshing? Wouldn't that be like, wow, I can't even believe I'm here, Lord, and I'm having this piece of fruit, and who knows? Maybe I know Adam is seen to be bigger and all this and different visions and this huge fruit, you know, compared to what I am now, and I'm eating this thing. I told my kids the other day, we had these big grapes from Peru. I said, can you imagine if those things were as big as your hand? You know, can you imagine eating a grape for that long? <laughs> you, know? you just can't, but, but imagine being there at the tree of life and looking back and saying, you know what? That was really nothing compared to, I mean, it was worth it. It was worth it. And it was all because I took that time to behold him, to remember his love. Ephesus is kind of a discouraging story at first when you research its history. It seems to have lost its love. It seems to, it didn't recover it fully even after that message because we know Ephesus is in modern Turkey. And I've shared part of this before, but Paul planted this church. We know John is writing to this church. And Christianity was the official religion around 380. But after that, the Muslim faith becomes the official religion, partly because of a tax. For instance, if you were a Christian, you get taxed 50%. If you were a Muslim, you get taxed only 10%. Okay, so some of them kind of, by the time that happens, you have some pagan Christianity as well mixed in all of that. And they give in and they basically say, well, it's easier to be a Muslim. So they just go right over so it's cheaper that way. It's just a whole other sermon. But. And what eventually happens is 98% of the Muslims, 73, 73 million, it's estimated, are Muslim today. So you only have, you have this group that seems to have faded off the scene, even though it officially was a religion in 380. It's just, it's, it's gone. And it seemed like as I looked at that initial history, I thought, wow, Lord, I, I hope that that's not the end of the story. And it's not. Because today we have 120,000 Christians, over 120,000 Christians from various denominations. In our denomination, we have 67 members in three churches. I mean, you think you're small, okay? <laughs> People say, oh, this small church here in Anderson, or this small church over there. You haven't seen small, really. You really haven't. Until you know, your whole congregation is six people. So you have 67 members in three churches, around 20-some members apiece. And they're trying to reopen that area of the 10, really, part, they're part of the 1040 window. You look at Turkey and these other places, of they're in the persecution zone. And so we have these, these members that are there. And I believe that shows us that God's love has not faded there, that he's still looking out for the people there, and he wants to continue to have this message going to that part of the world. I believe it also shows us that they are overcoming lost love. And if they could get to the point where it looks like they were dead and now they're alive again, then there's hope for me and there's hope for you. We too can be those overcomers and our closing song is once again to that effect. It's, it's up on the screen and whatever your experience is, if somehow love has been set aside, this song is saying you can be an overcomer. You can regain that. I can regain that. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you can know him as your Savior. You can know him as your friend, and he will walk with you every step of the journey. 
So this song will be up on the screen. Some of you know it already. Feel free to sing it if you know it. If you don't, just read the words and apply it to your life. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this message that you sent to Jesus, who sent it to his angel, who gave it to John. And now we've read it, part of it here this morning. 
And it says that we can be overcomers of lost love. We can be there at that beautiful place, the tree of life. So guide us, each one of us in our walks with you, to stay focused on you. Guide us if somehow things grow dim. Help us to come back to your loving experience, your life, and then have your love guide our lives from that day forward. Lord, we look forward to the day when we'll see you face to face and we'll be called overcoming ones. In Jesus' name.